Legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is lost cast, and may your ears receive it. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 86. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Today we're talking about playing games and making games. And Jeff, you've been playing Magic the Gathering recently, haven't you? Don't we always talk about playing and making games, Matt? Yeah, but today's different. Why? Because it's episode 86. Okay. You you know. (laughs) You know, 86. It's uh, some kind of a milestone, I'm sure. Basically, it's we don't have anything else to talk about, so we're just going to talk about the games we've been playing and working on. Well, that's pretty relevant anyway, because... It is. You know, the games we play uh, influence the games we make, you know. It's like filmmakers that watch movies. It could be argued that games is the one thing this podcast is actually about, because, you know, as we've discussed before, the topic changes drastically. It used to be about how to make HTML5 games, and then how to jump into business when you're not ready... (laughs) How to quit your job and be terrified for the next two years. and <laughs> <laughs> How to make a fraction of the money you're used to. Yeah, or sometimes it's just, it's just here's the games we've been playing. That's all we talked about this time. But this, this time it's going to be a mix, mix and match. Play this, and make. This is interesting conversation, though, because it also kind of touches on, like, game. It's not just the games we've been playing, but also, like, the monetary models of those games. At least for my purposes. So, anyways. Yeah. I was talking your ear off yesterday about Magic the Gathering. You were. And, and now I have to suffer through it again. You do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's for the benefit of our listeners, Matt. That's right. So you're going to suck it up and... Ah, here we go. That's right. Jeff complaining round two. Round two. Is it terrible to listen to someone complain about the same thing twice in a row? I mean, you've got some takeaways at least. That's true. <laughs> you know, it's like it's going somewhere. It's not just like, I'm just going to complain. I, I, I hate the bus. <laughs> i hate spaghetti <laughs> i actually i do hate spaghetti but that's a topic for a different lost cast <laughs> see that's that's not interesting <laughs> what you don't like about magic the gathering I, I actually find it interesting so i actually love magic the gathering as a game oh yeah um i played it you know probably starting in middle school i guess it was, what was your first set when you started playing what was the expansion that was currently out um let's see that's a good measurement for me it was before ice age nice so let's see it was definitely after legends and yep. the dark okay i started playing just barely before you I, I think the dark was the first one that came out after i started playing it was either the dark or fourth ed because when i started playing legends were, were still awesome it was the first time there were gold cards and uh lot like lots of multicolored cards it was when they the game was first starting to expand outside of its just standard, you know, mana and colors and stuff. Yeah. So I think I started playing right after Legends. Okay. And then maybe Arabian Nights, or maybe I don't remember when that one came. Anyways. Then that was before Legends. Okay. Then, yeah, I don't really know anything about anything. It's funny because your modern Magic the Gathering player is going to be like, what? What are you talking <laughs> what are, about? What are, what are these cavemen talking about? Like, they probably started <laughs> with, you know, Ice Age or, you know, the dozens of recent <laughs> sets I can't even name. Oh, Ice Age isn't even that recent. Ice Age is, like, still late 90s, probably. It's recent to me. Yeah, I'm sure that it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. Anyway, so I, I started playing Magic, you know, in middle school, and 
I played it for, I don't know, a number of years. Um, and my dad played it, my brother played it, and we all had a grand time. My friends played it. Nice. And it was like such a phenomenon in my school, actually, that they banned magic cards because uh, people were having them stolen. And it was creating cool. like quite the controversy at school. Yeah, they were really valuable, you know? They were, yeah. It was uh, it was crazy. I remember going down to like, you know, this is back in the day when there was, you know, comic book shops and stuff. I mean, there <laughs> still existed. are, but... <laughs> it's the 90s, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's right. You know, you'd go down, you, they would have all these magic cards like in the glass cases and you could look and see like, oh man, like a Black Lotus or whatever. Oh, yeah. And it was like, you know, $50 for one card. So And valuable. back in the day, you know, $50 to like, you know, middle school age Jeff was like... Might as well have been five hundred dollars. Yeah, it was like months <laughs> of your income, basically. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I liked that a lot, but then I kind of like got out of the magic scene, even though I really liked the game. Uh, as I got older, I just didn't have as many people to play with, and yeah, you know, I didn't want to be spending my disposable income buying booster packs <laughs> of cards and like maintaining <laughs> this large collection of of cards and stuff. I found that as we went into adulthood, because that, that's around when that was, you know, like I was firmly into the game as a teenager, but then I started to turn like 18 to 20 and that's around the time I got out of it because I was like, okay, I can afford an apartment probably six months from now if I just stop buying cards. <laughs> you know, it was like your choice. The choice was kind of, do you want to be an adult or do you want to keep playing magic? And I was like, well, I'd like to keep playing magic, <laughs> but I need to be an adult. I only have so much money. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, as you kind of transition into, like, you know, my first job was, like, working at Pizza Hut, so it wasn't right. like I was making a lot of money, and it was like, you can, you yeah. know, put gas in your car or <laughs> buy booster packs. It's a choice, yeah. But, you know, for, for whatever reason, like, I kind of stopped playing. Um, and then in kind of the more recent decade, I guess, uh, Magic kind of got on the, you know, computer game bandwagon, right. which I thoroughly enjoyed because... To me, that was great. It was like, okay, I can play Magic, but I don't have to invest in, like, all these cards. And I don't have to, more importantly to me, is, like, I don't have to have and manage these cards. Because yeah. one thing that I'm really not interested in anymore is physical stuff. Yes. You know, like, I like the the idea of playing Magic in person. And it still has, like, that, you know, kind of nostalgic appeal. And I, I do have, like, a couple of decks that I play with my brother in person when we get together. Nice. But, um, you know, by and large, I don't like to have a lot of things anymore. Yeah, I, I've still got my magic cards. I uh, I didn't know where they were the other day, actually. They're in this, like, flat, large box. Uh, they were under my bed, and I just... I I haven't even opened the box, uh, aside from... Uh, I like to use magic cards for my bookmarks on the rare occasion when I actually read a book. Uh, but other than that, I haven't opened it, like, to play them or to organize them or just to... Nothing. Years and years. I just... I've still got this attachment. I cannot get rid of them. As a side note, I'm going the same direction with books. I don't want to own yeah. any physical books anymore ever again. Yeah, I'm along those same lines. I'm reading everything on like my Android tablet. Yeah. But anyways, like the Magic the Game Magic the Gathering games are are pretty fun because in, in my opinion, they kind of had a lot of the appeal uh, of the actual game but without some of the annoying aspects of being a collectible card game. Right. Uh, one of the things that I actually appreciated was the series of games they have called Duels of the Planeswalkers. And basically right. what it, how it works is that there are like a set number of decks and you can like use, okay, I'm going to use the blue deck or the white deck or the black and white deck or whatever. And each deck has like N number of cards that can be unlocked and then you can mix and match the cards that belong to that deck into the deck, uh, however you see fit. Yeah. But the upshot is, is that when you play against people online, it's kind of a known quantity, you know, like you're going up against this guy and you could say like, oh, you know, he's he's using 
the blue deck, right? And there's some variation within that blue deck that is possible, but you know that there's never going to be like, oh, he went out and bought like all these crazy cards and he's just going to obliterate me, you know? Yes. It's more of like, you know, you're playing chess almost. Like, you know, it's like chess, but with more variation, you know, like he has strengths and weaknesses, I have strengths and weaknesses, and like, if I'm going up against his deck and it's a bad mismatch for me, then I'm probably going to lose, but at the same time, you almost have a fighting chance in any matchup. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's important because back when I stopped playing with my friends, they kept going, you know, they had all these new cards, and it got to the point where every single card they put down, I'd be like, what? And I'd have to read it. And they were all overpowered because the way magic was designed, the cards just kept getting more and more powerful, you know? There'd be the one version of a card, like, say, Fire Breathing, and then a couple expansions later, it'd be the exact same card, same casting cost, same effects, but it would have a benefit. Like, you know, when it's destroyed, it goes back into your hand, or you get some free mana, or or whatever. Just the cards were just objectively better. And when I played with someone else, it was like this big unknown, you know, because Magic the Gathering has this vast library. So even if it was just like, you know, I'm only going to use cards from this set or only cards in this pre-built deck, like that makes a big difference because you can kind of understand what your opponent's abilities are going to be, right? Right. And, you know, to be fair, there are multiple ways to play that game. There's It's perfectly oh, yeah. valid if you want to play the kind of scenario where it is about, you know, building your deck completely from scratch. You can make it 15 colors if you want or, you know, five. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, yeah. you can put anything you want. You can make it, you know... Three force artifacts and, you know, the rest blue and red spells if, if you want. You know, there's no... Mix and match. There's no thematic requirements. And that's a perfectly valid way to play. Yeah. I find that for my kind of casualness, I don't like that as much. Yeah, I hear you. But uh, the annoying thing with magic, I'm going to get to my <laughs> ranty part now. <laughs> Here it comes. Is that they kind of... Uh, they kind of took this Madden approach to the game. Where... And- you know, Describe what you mean by that. Like You're talking about Madden football, just so I people am. know. That's true, yeah. I, I tend to use words that mean something to me. It's maddening. It's maddening. <laughs> it upsets <yeah>. me. <laughs> no, like Madden football. Where and, and describe what you mean by that. So Madden is a football series put out by EA. And every year, basically, they release a new version of Madden. And the game is largely the same because football doesn't really change. I mean, it probably has some <laughs> new features or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like the primary driver is that the rosters change every year and you know in sports that's a big thing like who's on the team this year and uh you know especially because sports players are so popular you know uh, people always want to play with like oh you know this guy's on the st louis rams now and i want to play with him because he's the quarterback or whatever you know totally um so it's kind of understandable but in magic the gathering i feel like it really doesn't do the game well because what ends up happening is that you kind of get this effect where um, you completely disregard the collectible aspect or the unlockable nature of the game. You know, I had these right. decks in Magic 2013 that I liked and I unlocked all the cards for. And then when I played Magic 2014, I had to start from scratch. I had no decks whatsoever. And, you know, it's not a huge deal, but at the same time, it gets annoying every year when you just want to play like the same kind of a game, but you want some new content and you end up buying a whole different game. Right. And... Magic, as a collectible card game, you know, I think benefits from, like, a long time of play. It does, definitely. And, uh, you know, maybe they did it because 
they think that the decks from Magic 2012 aren't good enough to compete with the, Mag- the decks from Magic 2013, 2014, or whatever. Yeah. But I feel like you could solve that in other ways. You know, you could still allow people to play with the older decks. It's kind of like tournaments, right? Like Magic the Gathering will hold tournaments where, you know, anything goes, any deck you want, or, you know, you can only use uh, cards from this particular series. Yeah. The tournament rules vary a lot. There's pretty standard where there will just be cards that are forbidden because, you know, the test of time has proven that they're overpowered or they just make this the tournament rules not apply. And there's lots of different modes you can play as well that the tournament sometimes pick up on or like... You know, this is a tournament only with this expansion or these three expansions, that kind of a thing. Yeah. So my first complaint there is that, one, they're not playing into their strength of being a collectible card game by basically resetting your collection every year. Yeah. Um, And secondly, you know, when you purchase the game every year, it's a upfront download and it's not too expensive. It's probably like... 10 bucks or 15 bucks or somewhere in that neighborhood 20 bucks just for the game itself it's like 15 yeah just for the game itself gotcha but on top of that you can either play the game and unlock cards or you can purchase and unlock cards right and so they have this mixed model of you pay up front and they try to extract money from you via in-app purchases they're double dipping and dlc yeah they're like triple dip triple dip So yeah, and they have so they have expansions to each of like the yearly releases. So Magic 2013 will have expansions that add new decks, but then Magic 2000 the next year will basically reset everything and have a whole bunch of starter decks, and then they'll have DLC that will expand upon those decks, and then rinse repeat. And that's that's just I find that to be a really tiresome model. Um, and the other thing is that in Magic 2015 they removed one of my personal favorite game modes, which is Two Headed Giant. Two-headed giant. How does that work? So two-headed giant is basically 2v2. So you have a shared life pool with your partner. And uh, otherwise, it's basically very similar magic. Um, with the exception being that like you can only attack the person across from you. Right. And that doesn't have a whole lot of implications because of the shared health pool. But there are certain cases where it matters. Yeah. Like um, the monsters that person has in play... You might not be able to get past or vice versa, right? Right. So, like, if you're, like, playing black and someone's playing white and they have, like, circle protection black, you know, and if you're across from that person, your monsters won't do damage to them or whatever. Right. Um, but if it was reversed and you were, like, opposite the green player, then that wouldn't be an issue. Right, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> getting into the nuances. Yes, the depth. The depth. But anyways... uh so all that combined, you know, I was about to buy Magic 2015 again this year because it just came out like last this month, you know, because I'm a big fan of the series and I love Magic. And yeah. uh, but then all these things just kind of started to wear on me. And I turned back to Hearthstone, which is a game that I've played a little bit before and I actually kind of like. Um, but I'm liking more and more because the way that Magic has been, you know, monetized and the way that they deliver the product has been extremely unsatisfactory to me. Yeah. Valid complaints. Which is, it's tough because like, I feel like I'm a long time lover of the Magic series and they're turning me away with, I think are pretty bad marketing decisions. Um, I agree. The thing I like about Hearthstone is that it's one, completely free to play. So it doesn't kind of mix these two things, which is pay up front and then pay for cards. So, and it doesn't have like this yearly re-release schedule. 
Right. I mean, Hearthstone's a fairly new game, so it kind of remains to be seen what will end up happening as it moves forward. But, you know, the implication so far is that there will just be expansions that will add new cards to the to the pool. Yeah. Um, another thing that I really like about Hearthstone, actually, is they've taken a different approach to mana than Magic did. Oh, yeah, much better. Much better approach, yeah. Like, I mean, we were talking about this yesterday. One of the worst things to happen in Magic the Gathering is if you get no mana or too much mana or the opposite happens to your opponent. Yes. You know, and if your opponent has no mana and you end up winning the game, it's not a fun game, even though you right. won. So, if you're not familiar with Magic the Gathering, it's a, it's a card game, and I'm just going to give you a quick gist of it so you can understand how mana works. Uh, you each have card decks that range usually in about 60 cards, but that can change based on the rules and stuff, and you start off with a hand of seven cards. And basically what you want probably is uh, probably three land in your opening hand, you know, a little bit less than half maybe, to so that you know you can get started, you can do something, because you need mana to do anything in the game, right? It's, very rare cards and they're very weak that you can just put out for free that that don't have any cost and so when you don't have mana like this is what you're always terrified of when you start a new game uh you draw your first hand and none of it's mana and you're screwed and like it's even worse if all the hand uh, all the cards in your hand have really high casting costs because you know that even if your next turn you do get a lucky land you're not gonna be able to cast anything and so it becomes this game where your opponent might be doing just fine, building up his little army and hitting you every turn, and you are landlocked. You can't do anything. Every turn you draw a card, you can't cast anything, and the way magic works is you have to discard down to seven cards, so every turn you're just sitting there discarding. And if you've been a long-time magic player, you've definitely been in this situation, and it sucks. It does suck, and it's a pretty good example of why sometimes pure randomization but actually, it's like, not really pure randomization, but it's distributed across your deck. But still, like it's bad. Like that random aspect of the game is bad. Yeah. It's almost objectively so because yeah. there's no wiggle room. It's like there's a sweet spot for mana. Yeah, and if you don't have enough or you have too much, they're both bad. Yeah, that's the other thing. If you have a, a hand full of land, like that's possible as well. And every card you're drawing is either land or something crap that you don't need, you know? Like, really what you want is something tangible, like a good monster or a wall to build up your defenses. So, like, that's the other thing. It's a, almost like a double-edged sword. You have to live in this middle place where you have just enough land but not too much. And it complicates deck construction, you know? like Yeah, it does. When you're building a deck, you have to be aware of how much mana goes into your deck. And, you know, some people might say, like, that's part of the fun and the appeal of the game, but... You know, it could be. Others might argue that it's not that fun, and I would be one of them. <laughs> I always hated trying to think about how much mana would go into my deck. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan either. My general rule of thumb was if I was making a 60-card deck, it would have 20 lands, but I would decrease that. Like I would replace one of the lands with a soul ring, which, if you're not familiar, is an artifact that can give you uh, colorless mana, which means you can use it on you know, just about anything, but not everything. Right. So... Uh, Hearthstone has a pretty great approach to mana, I think, and it, it solves the problem quite nicely. One is that there's no colors of mana. Right. So it's just things cost mana. So there's yeah. everything is colorless, essentially. Um, simpler. It is simpler. And your deck doesn't ever contain mana cards. So your deck only contains creatures and spells and you know whatever else, you know actual cards that have benefit when you play them. Fun stuff. Fun stuff, exactly, yeah. And the way that mana works is that <clears throat> on turn one, you get one mana. On turn two, you have two mana. On turn three, yeah. you have three mana, and so on and so forth, until you Perfect. get to the maximum of ten. 
I think. But basically, it's like as if you got a free land card every turn and you were able to play it. Which is about what you want in Magic. Like, that might be about perfect, you know? Right. I mean, because you can only play, in general, one land card per turn. Right. I think that system works out really well. I think another reason it works out really well is that you also kind of get around these weird decks. Like in Magic, uh, even in like the sanctioned decks, they had these really annoying decks that were like all about <laughs> green cards and they were all about like really stupid big creatures. Yeah. And like tons of mana gain cards. Right. So like the whole strategy was that you'd hope that you get like this initial hand with like lots of wild growth or rampant growth and like you know, you'd basically be at, like, 10 or 15 mana before your opponent was at 5. And that you'd be dropping, like, all these huge green creatures. And it was, like, I can see where that's kind of, like, a fun strategy to employ. But in the long run, it ends up being annoying. Because what ends up happening is if you go up against that deck, you know, they're going to outpace you very quickly on mana. Uh, right. Either one or two things is going to happen. They're going to outpace you on mana because they get all of their mana cards and they bring out their big green creatures and they stomp you into oblivion by like turn five <laughs> yeah or or they don't get those mana cards and you beat them pretty much and like that's not that fun yeah neither scenario is all that great right it's interesting that i've actually been having a lot of fun with hearthstone recently because you know uh, and, and it, it took me a while to kind of realize that you know maybe these changes are warranted because when i first encountered the game i was like oh it's not magic like Blah, Anything blah, but blah. magic is crap. <laughs> right. Like, oh, <laughs> cheap magic knockoff. Yep. Uh, but actually, you know, I, I've kind of enjoyed it. One, And then another thing about it is that Blizzard has, like, this great attention to quality. Like, the game feels great. The polish is great. It's juicy. And yeah. it's relatively bug-free, you know? As whereas magic is, like, I don't really... The dev, I think, is called Stainless. And I don't want to, like, knock them too hard, but magic 2012 on or even 2010 on has had like the same bugs it's slow the polish is laggy uh i've had games just like completely lock up on me and then like you know once you're kicked out of a game uh two things happen i've had games lock up where the game just won't continue like someone's turn just won't end and like you're stuck and you have to exit the game uh or two you get kicked out of the game and then you know there's no way to rejoin it yeah and, uh, you know, barring, like, an internet connection loss, I haven't had that happen in Hearthstone, at, at the very least. Right. So, at your suggestion, I actually downloaded it yesterday, and, uh, I, yeah, I was really impressed. I mean, it <laughs> it basically feels like if Magic the Gathering was made by PopCap, because it has that simplicity, it has that level of polish, uh, everything just shines, everything is delightful, there's never uh, very much confusion about what's going on, you know, they, they keep things deliberately simple but it, there's still a nice amount of strategy it doesn't really feel lacking i mean i've only played the six games like the initial ones uh but i feel like i get the gist of it and i watch some videos and stuff like i feel like i've got a decent understanding of the game and it is really it's like take magic the gathering make it digital and make it just super accessible and, and i admire that yeah i do too and um i think it's kind of like it's blown blizzard strengths right like they yeah. can take a concept and execute on it really well um, I like to think about it as, you know, World of Warcraft is to EverQuest as Hearthstone is to Magic the Gathering. Right. You know, they take a game that was like overcomplicated and less polished and they apply the Blizzard quote unquote touch to it. Yes. Um, and they end up with like a really great piece of work. 
Yeah, I had the same kind of naysayer attitude when I first heard about it. I was like, oh, here we go. Blizzard's going to make a Magic the Gathering type, you know, ripoff, whatever. I'm all grumbly because I'm an old school Magic player. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. I come around. I, I can see where there are gaps in things. You know, like I, I have memories of trying to get new friends into Magic the Gathering. And the problem was it was it was so inaccessible. I'd give them this book. You had to read this freaking little pamphlet that Dex came with, you know? And it was big and it was confusing. And there was like, oh, reverse stacking and counter spells and just... Oh, that's another big one, I think, is uh, as far as I can tell in Hearthstone, you can't really do anything on your opponent's turn. No, you cannot. Which is great. Like, I, I used to have decks where, like an artifact deck I had... The whole bit was I wasn't doing anything on my turn. I was doing everything on my opponent's turn, which is so obnoxious. My friends would just tell me like, "Ugh, you're playing your artifact deck again. I hate that deck." You're like, and you it know, confused things. Someone you know, would go like, to cast a spell, and you're like, "Stop." You're yes. Like, oh goddamn it! All right. Like every like they were not free at all to do anything. Every single thing they were doing, I was like, "Wait, wait, okay, <laughs> wait, wait, no, no, stop that." And I would do something, and they're like, Ugh, <laughs> "I hate you." Um. That actually is one of the reasons that I think Hearthstone is a much faster-paced game. Yes. and Which I think is a good thing. It's The matches are very, very quick. Good. And like you said, there's not a lot of like, oh, I interrupt, I interrupt. And there's not like, you know, in Magic, you get into these situations where you're like, I'm going to cast a creature. And then they're like, no, you're not. I'm going to counterspell it. And then they're like, no, you're not. I'm going to counterspell your counterspell. And then, you know, <laughs> if someone says, no, I'm going to tap this creature that also acts like a counterspell. Yeah. And you get like this stacking interrupt stack that is complicated. You have to like resolve everything backwards. And and uh, to be fair, that's cool. That's really cool. It does feel like a wizard battle, you know? Like yeah. I'm going to cast a spell and I'll cast a spell to re- respond to your spell. And it's this like infinitely um, strategic game. You know, there's almost always something you could do if you just had enough mana or the right card. And that's very cool, but it is so inaccessible. And even after years of playing... We would get tripped up, you know, and we would like, we had an expert player, uh, our, one of our friends, Jim, we'd always ask him, and like, we'd even call him sometimes, Jim, we don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. And Jimmy'd be like, wait, wait, wait. So he moved that first, but then he tapped that. But, oh, I see. No, 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 no. You guys are doing that wrong. You know? And that was after years of experience, hours and hours and hours of playing. And it was still confusing sometimes. The rules were just yeah, pretty you, abrasive. You need like a referee. <laughs> <laughs> Foul. That's right. It's illegal. Yeah. And that also made it really obnoxious to play with strangers. Like there was a um, uh, a nearby magic card store and they had board games and stuff and uh, you could play there. You could just sit on a table and just play with strangers. And I, I tried that uh, <laughs> very few times because there were people who were just unbearable to play against because, you know, they had that thing where every single thing you're doing, they would want you to spell it out and they want you to stop and they were just all over you, you know, and Hearthstone would have that at least a little bit less, even in person, because... It's like, shut up, it's my turn, I'm going. You shut your mouth, <laughs> and <then laughs> it'll be your turn shortly. Like, there's nothing for you to do right now, you know? So, the one thing that Hearthstone does have, which is kind of along those same lines, is they have what's called secret cards. And I don't know Ooh. if you've encountered those yet. Thanks for the spoiler, Jeff. <laughs> right. No, I haven't yet, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the way secret cards work is they're very simplified. Um, basically, what will happen is that you will, on your turn, play a secret card, and it will essentially be like face down. Right. But you will pay the casting cost up front. So you will say, I'm playing this secret card and it'll go down. Is that a trap? It's like a trap, right? My brother was saying there's traps in the game. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. So okay. basically, here's an example. There's a hunter, and a hunter class, and the hunter class has this, uh, I forget what the card is called, but the idea is, is you pay X mana, 
and the secret card goes down, and the next time your opponent casts a creature, that creature takes four damage immediately. Right. And so, but your opponent can also see that there's a secret card on the table. They don't know exactly what it is, but they know that that card will activate in response <laughs> to something that they do. Something. Something, right? So, <laughs> if you know what deck your opponent is playing, you can guess, like, okay, it's probably either going to be, you know, maybe there, there's several possibilities, but you can kind of think about, like, okay, it might do damage to a creature I pull out right away or whatever. And right. so you can kind of use that to your advantage. You know, you can, it's kind of like in magic how you can bait, you know, like, oh, you cast your lightning bolt to draw out a counter spell before casting your like 15 damage fireball. Yeah, totally. Or something, you know? So it kind of has that same kind of effect, but uh, it's easier and simple. Um, and I, I kind of like the fact that your opponent can see it coming, you know, and it gives your opponent a little bit uh, better of a chance to know that they should do something more strategic right you know yeah. because when you're playing against a blue deck i mean counterspell can come at any time you, i mean anytime yes. no idea yeah it just comes out of the blue magic at least has some elements where you know <clears throat> you, you can see that your opponent has a number of cards in their hand and at any time you can ask them and they have to tell you how many cards you have in your hand you know right and there's even cards that let you look at their hand but that's typically like a one-time thing. Actually, there are cards, too, that are kind of wacky. That's like your opponent has to play with their hand on the table, that kind of a thing. Um, but that kind of comes with just Magic's incredible extensibility, but, you know, you suffer uh, some of the accessibility with that, you know? it's you got this crazily complex rules that you can do almost anything with, and along with that comes a lot of confusion. Anyways, I guess the upshot of this conversation is that uh, I feel like Magic is a great game. I think that Hearthstone is a more accessible game. Yes. And as I get older, and this is just, you know, my preference, uh, it to me is a better experience. Yeah. For a, lo- a number of reasons. And I think one of the primary reasons is that it doesn't have, like you said, as much of the annoying complexity and like random crap as Magic does. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a bullet point. Play Magic the Gathering. It's got lots of cards. Collectability. Extensibility. Random crap. (laughs) Crap. Well, buy now. I mean, randomized crap. You know, like the mana, the mana problem. Yes. (laughs) So, anyways, that's a. It's a good thing to think about because we often trip over randomization in our games, and we've been trying more recently to be aware of that because randomization is such an attractive tool. I think we talked about this before, and I'm trying to kind of bring this rambly game conversation back to (laughs) some kind of game devery point make it a great segue into your next game (laughs) knock it out of the park best segue ever here we go (laughs) from hearthstone to your next game oh my god you're putting a lot of pressure on me here matt (laughs) it's already completely ruined it is but anyways yes we've been trying to you know be cognizant of the fact that randomization can suck and it's hard because randomization is such an easy way to add like superficial depth to your game. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like, I don't know. I, I'm not going to make a terrible Matt analogy here, but oh, <laughs> what a shame when you, we have this toolbox of tools and you know, you're making a game and you're making a prototype and you're like, well, how can I spice this up a little bit? It's very easy to say, oh, you know, I'll just random one to five, you know, and then here's some diversity for you. Like, great. The game is now more interesting. Right. That's not really true. <laughs> it, it can be true sometimes, but it can also be used badly. I think we were talking about chess the other day. So, like, imagine you're playing chess 
and you know i'm gonna i got my rook i'm gonna take your knight and the only difference between this game of chess and any other game of chess you've played is now you have to roll a die and if you roll say a six then you know your rook is gone instead of you taking the knight right you know like that's that's different sometimes in chess that would suck that'd be pretty terrible you know there's other games other situations where it's pretty great but it's pretty evident that sometimes randomization just sucks and i think there's a lot of examples of like in a wizard's lizard where the randomness sucks we put it in there and it had that kind of you know chess aspect where you're like that shouldn't really be random that should be you know predictable right and i think that there's you know there are varying degrees of randomness you know yeah you know it's interesting i uh when you're talking about like random map generation random map generation hardly is hardly ever just completely random right yeah at like the stupid end of a random map generator you would have a 2d tile map and for every cell you would say there's a 10 percent chance this will be a wall right and you'd fill yeah. the entire map like that and yeah it would be easy and stupid uh <laughs> and fast but it would be like the worst map ever yes right and so <laughs> it's another great bullet point <laughs> play our games easy and stupid <laughs> two bullet points <laughs> bye now <laughs> right <laughs> bye now 1599 <laughs> uh, a lot of it is is almost like the illusion of randomness right and you know obviously there should be a random component but it shouldn't be i, I guess the point is that randomness should not be like fundamentally game altering randomness right. should be used to like vary up things slightly so like yeah in a game with a procedurally generated map you know randomness is used to great effect when you know okay sometimes it's this kind of a room and sometimes it's this other kind of a room or sometimes the hallway goes left sometimes it goes right or you know things like that yeah it's bad in like magic of the gathering where the randomization is like well you got no starting lands yeah or one starting land or even two starting lands still you're like oh that's kind of bad so the randomization aspect, it's like, say you've got an item in a game, it's a gun, right? And 10% of the time, it's going to explode in your face. That's not fun. That sucks, right? And if it was more like, say, a gun where it's like a six shooter, you know, there's six bullets in it, and, you know, there's one bullet in it that's going to blow up in your face. That's a step in the right direction where there's a little bit of predictability to it, right? But that's the nice thing about environments and the creation of tile sets and, and maps and stuff where... When those are random, it's a pretty big win because it's all laid out in front of you, you know? The fact that there's, say, a trap here, you can see it when you approach it. You know, there's not this aspect of, oh, there was a trap in that tile, you couldn't see it, ha ha, you take some damage. You know, that, that can be fun sometimes, but not necessarily in the kind of games we want to build all the time. True. And even then, like, a game like Wizard's Lizard, when we were building it, the layout of traps in a room is not completely random. A lot of times, a given room will say, like, here's an area where traps can be. Right. Here's an area where treasures can be. And within those confined spaces, the spots for a specific trap are chosen randomly. Usually not like we just say, hey, put this trap anywhere in the room. Yeah. There's uh, some rhyme to the reason, right? Because we found that that didn't feel very good. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it works, quote unquote, but it doesn't <laughs> produce fun levels. Yeah. And there's even some scenarios in a wizard's lizard where uh, there will be a section where it is completely random. And we've seen that, uh, so let's say this section, I'm going to put some spikes and I'm going to put a pressure plate that you have to step on in order for the door to open. And there is a chance, however slight and small, that 
it'll put a pressure plate and it'll surround it with spikes because it's purely random, you know, and we never thought about that. We never saw any of our plate testing and uh, none of our plate testers saw it. It wasn't until it reached steam with, you know, tens of thousands of people playing it and then it finally surfaced and we were like, oh yeah, that's, that's really crappy, you know, right. <laughs> pretty terrible. And it's like, it's dangerous, right? Because it's superficially interesting, um, but it's very uncontrolled, you know? Yeah. So you get wild ends of the spectrum, right? Like that, I think that's the real problem with randomization like that. And it, it's also the problem with magic is that you're susceptible to the extremes. Yes. And the extremes being like this thing is completely surrounded by, surrounded by traps or the traps are like on the complete opposite side of the room as the treasure. And that's not really fun either because then there's no danger, right? The traps, like if you can just largely ignore the traps and pick up the treasure, then that's not really dangerous and challenging. And then yeah. vice versa is if the traps are unavoidable, you know, it's also not challenging. It's just painful yeah it needs to live in this middle spectrum right where the traps are in your way but avoidable right and the randomization ensures that you will have everything on that wide spectrum you'll have cheap traps and you'll have traps that might as well just be decoration and so there needs to be more hand curation in there than just a purely random layout right so this is like a lesson that we're slowly learning because we're kind of <laughs> dense and um very we're slow learners <laughs> slow, slow learners <laughs> and uh you know and it's one of the things that when we look back you know we try to do you know we don't do like i think you would like to do more official postmortems. i would yeah but i, I think that we end up doing a lot of postmortem type stuff you know mini mortem mini mortems yes well you and kind i of. talk about like the pain points within our games ad nauseum yeah and so i think that for all intents and purposes we get the benefits of doing a postmortem, as in like we have examined the game we know where things suck <laughs> and we've talked yeah. about why they suck and how they might be rectified. Is it worth rectifying them for this particular game or is it something that we should just keep in mind moving to the next game? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Man, I, I love a good postmortem. Uh, they used to be posted on Kama Sutra a lot more, but more reliably, there was almost always the one, at least, in Game Developer Magazine, which was a monthly magazine that I, I still mourn the loss of. But man, those things were great. And they had a like a format to it. It would be, you know, here's the game. Here was our goals. And uh, here's a basic summary of what, how we thought it went. And then it would have like five things to mention on here's what went well and here's what went badly. And then they'd summarize it all up. And that format was super good, you know, because it forced you to kind of find like what were the five rays of light in this project? And what were the five things that sucked or, you know, we could have done better? Pits of despair. And, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it's great because, you know, you learn by spelling it out. Other people can learn by reading it and consuming it in this great readable format, you know? Right. I like them a lot. I, I think that a big part of why we haven't committed to doing like a proper, you know, giant like four or five page article is because we really haven't had anything that was, I don't know, like worthy of it. A Wizard's Lizard probably is there, but... I don't know. It needs to be like a proper postmortem, you know, like once we're done, because we still have things we're going to learn. You know, we haven't done a major update yet. We're going to learn from that. We haven't put it on sale post-release. We're going to learn from that. And yeah. uh, so I don't know. I guess we're just kind of waiting. There are lots of great takeaways and we do have some notes and there are bullet points. It's not just this, you know, <laughs> oh, you want to know the lessons we learned from a wizard lizard? Here, go listen to these 35 podcasts. <laughs> you, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's not the best. I feel like there's kind of two two different things going on, right? Like, on one hand, the purpose of the postmortem should be for us to acknowledge what we think was bad about the game and understand what we can do better next time. Yeah. And then completely separate from that is us putting out a public postmortem that details those findings in a nice digestible way for everyone else. It's yeah. almost like iterating on our entity component system or whatever, right? <laughs> like we make changes to it and we update it and we make it work better for ourselves. And then completely separate from that, we could make a series of articles about how to do it. Right. Yeah. But, and that's overwhelming too, because I, I do want to write a series of articles. You know, it's, it's easy to get uh, tripped up. You'll be like, you're writing a postmortem and you're like, what went wrong? Well, number one, game design, <laughs> 15 bullet points underneath that one you know like that's not a that doesn't fit with the format super great so it can get overwhelming you almost want to write i want to write a postmortem about the tech and a postmortem about the marketing strategy and a postmortem about uh the, the game design and yeah i don't know i i always try to want to do more and bite off more than i can chew well and it's kind of like our eternal struggle between you know spending time making our games better and being better at making games and versus yeah. disseminating that information to the developer audience that wants to learn from it. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, obviously we think is a great thing we'd like to do more of, but, you know, I always try to frame that in my mind as like, that's a completely separate initiative. I mean, it, it's very, it's beneficial and it's laudable and, and I love people to do it and I would love to do it more, but it is something that is a different endeavor than simply, you know, iterating on our own games. Yeah, I, I still just feel like too much of a fraud usually when I try to write articles, you know. Like, we, we've done some, and I've actually written a, a bunch of articles on Gama Sutra and, and that kind of stuff. But, like, the same with speaking at conferences and crap. Like, I just don't feel like we've earned it yet, you know. People want to learn from successes. I mean, I don't know. They want to learn from mistakes, too. And that it could be argued that you actually learn more from mistakes. But I think that that's contextual. You know, like, a lot of people need to learn by having made the mistake, you know, I know that I'm that way. I'll hear some advice like, oh, yes, I, I did hear that advice. And then I go do it. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I should have listened to the advice. But I, I, I couldn't. You know, I was I was mute. Or, <laughs> I was deaf to it. I had to go and figure it out for myself. I don't know. No, I completely agree with that because, you know, this is why I didn't really do well in school because yeah. I don't learn well if I'm not doing it. Yeah. And I don't enjoy doing things that I perceive to be like tedious and for the sake of just doing them, you know, like homework, <laughs> for example. So all of school, basically. Basically, yeah, all of school. <laughs> but, you know, like, you give me an environment where you're like, oh, you know, you need to make this game have some physics. And then I'm like, oh my God, math, I love it. Let me consume all of the math. Physics is the greatest class ever. Right, yeah. If it had been framed to me, you know, if I, if I had learned physics in the context of making video games, uh, I would have, like, passed that class with flying colors. Man, I think about that kind of thing a lot. I remember I took piano lessons for several years when I was a kid, and my piano teacher had me learning Beethoven, Mozart, and the typical stuff you'd expect, and, and I liked it, and it was good and everything, but I wasn't, like, fired up about it. You know, I wasn't excited. And if she had just, you know, <laughs> bought some sheet music from Japan, like, oh, here's some Final Fantasy sheet music, or Mega Man, <laughs> here's some Kid Icarus, like, <laughs> I would have been all over that. That would have been, like, all I was doing, you know? She's always telling me, you need to practice. Like, did you practice in last week? And I'm like, no. I would have been playing Mega Man, though, I'll tell you that much. And I guess that's the hard part about school, right, is that not everybody 
in a public classroom learning physics would want to learn it through video game physics. Exactly. And so that's like the challenge, right? Is that you can't just say, well, all physics classes in high school are now based on game devery. Yeah. Because uh, that wouldn't work for everybody. But, you know, I think that a lot of people are like that. In that There's something fun you can find, right? It can be yeah. like, okay, so you like physics and you like puppies. Let's talk about physics as it relates to puppies. You know, if I'm going to hurl this puppy into space, <laughs> here, here's the algorithm you use to calculate this puppy's trajectory into death. <laughs> Maybe not the best way to go with that one. But How many seconds you get the idea. will the puppy live in outer space with no oxygen? <laughs> She's crying while writing down the formula. <laughs> like, maybe we don't want to go with uh, with the puppies. <laughs> maybe just not in outer space. A space princess is going into space. Sailor Moon, here we go. Yes, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was trying to segue, or you were trying to segue me into talking I was trying about... to force you to segue, but basically what I do is I just try to create these terrible segues <laughs> in an effort to have great segues. But uh, here's an abrupt 180. Now talk about your game you've been prototyping, Jeff. So, uh, this last week or so, we've kind of taken a, a smallish break from AWL just because, you know, we worked on it for a long time and we want to start exploring some ideas for our next project. Got to move forward. Got to move forward. And so, you know, we're taking a little bit of a, a vacation, so to speak, <laughs> to yep. work on uh, other ideas because it keeps us sane, one. <laughs> uh, and two, it's a good business decision because... AWL, like any other game, is going to see the majority of its sales, uh, one, at launch, yes, and two, via like promotions or whatever. And so it will probably have some kind of a tail, but by and large, you know, uh, we should be thinking about making another game in order to reap the benefits of a nice launch <laughs> yes. and sales. It's interesting. So you and I had kind of went back and forth on this quite a bit because oh, yeah. what direction to go with our next project is a big decision. It's overwhelming, too. You can do anything. Yeah. You can make any game you want, Jeff. What will it be? And so, you know, one of the things that we've been thinking about is like, you know, let's go the Jeff Vogel approach. I'm going to call it the Jeff Vogel approach. Okay. And Spiderweb software. Yeah. Jeff Vogel is uh, the guy or, you know, one of the guys. Prim primary dev, right? Yeah. The primary developer behind Spiderweb software. And he's been doing it for like probably a decade and, or two. And his method, roughly is that he has these kind of very story-driven, very classic RPG games. And the way he describes his process is that when he goes to make a new game, he upgrades his engine with a few new features, changes some things around maybe, and then right. writes a whole new story and world around it with new characters and new dialogue and new setting and blah, blah, blah. But he largely <laughs> uses the same engine and he makes the same types of games. You know, they're all these kind of like isometric, projected, story-driven RPG games. They're all like a, a version of Ultima, some older version of Ultima or something. Right. And like, that's interesting because it allows him to move pretty fast, right? He has this solid, stable game engine that does pretty much everything he wants his next game to do. And all he needs to do is make the content for that game. And when you're doing the same thing over and over again, you know, as long as you're focusing on improving, it stands to reason that over time, that thing it'll get better and better and better. You know, like his role-playing games, I hope, are getting, like every single one is like an improvement, you know? Because it's the same thing, but more and better. Right. And that has a lot of attractiveness to it, right? Because he's a small team and it allows him to move faster and it allows him to gain more expertise. He stands on his own shoulders, essentially, right? right. Uh, and so his games can get better and better. And like, for us, because we're not a studio that's going to grow significantly, you know, that that's... 
the other way that we could be making bigger and better games. You know, it's like with two guys making the games, there are only choices to reuse in order to, to shorten our dev cycles and make better games in the same amount of time. Yeah. The other choices would be to just take longer, which for us is not a very good option because we... For small indie studios, that can be death. Yeah, it can be death, yeah. One is, I, I kind of feel like long projects tend to like, they get out of control, control very easily. They, they do. They, like, the longer you have, the more it spirals out of control. Because you think you have forever, you know? Yeah. It's this period of time that you're not experienced with as a creative person, and so you can't comprehend what it means. You know, like, if someone's never built a game before, you know, you're like, here's a year, go make a game. You might as well say, here's bleh, go make a game. They have no idea what you just said, so they're just, do-do-do, it sounded like forever. <laughs> I'm just going to spin wheels. Right. Um, and then the other way to do it would be to grow the team. You know, so you right. can make a bigger game in the same amount of time, but with more people. And like that obviously has other indie disadvantages in that like you have to hire people and manage people and more mouths to feed. More mouths to feed, yeah. And you know, given some numbers we've seen from other indie games like Dust Force and things like that, you know, when you're splitting the revenue of like, you know, two to three hundred thousand dollars of your game, you're splitting it four ways, like no one is making that much money. Yes. So, you know, and, and you and I are in the same boat and we're making some money and the only reason that we're relatively, relatively successful is that we are only splitting it two ways. Yeah, like our salaries are pathetic when you look at what we used to make as web developers. Yeah. Our version of success is at this point just we get to make the next game. Right. And, but even that, it, it needs to be kind of modified with like, you know, move your ass. You know, we don't have a lot of time, right? Yeah. We don't have a very long runway. We've got a runway. We can work on the next game, but like it needs to ship and it needs to be profitable or else we'll be right back in the same boat we were last year where we can't afford to pay the bills unless we pick up licenses and contracts. Right, which is a place we don't want to be. Right. So yeah, we're like on the verge of success uh, and success being defined as we can kind of repeat this model of launching a game to some amount of money that will sustain us for the next game yes so close so close anyway so there's a lot of things that go into this uh decision but you and i kind of started down the path of you know we should really make a game that's a lot like awl in the engine sense yes right like it should be three force overhead because we have a lot of infrastructure and we have some experience with that and we know what we're doing and that's still a very attractive option and we started down that path and we had some ideas and we started working on some stuff but we kind of found that we were kind of committing to things too early, as oh, yeah. we tend to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's what we do, man. <laughs> it's what we do. And so we decided to kind of also explore some other prototypes. We're still very interested in, you know, going down the reuse of the AWL core engine kind of approach. Um, but I, mm. I do think that there are parts of us that wants to make other games. Yes, <laughs> that's undeniable. And and we've talked about this actually just recently on our forum is, you know, we made some turn-based strategy games and we made some action games and we've kind of been splitting those markets and stuff. Um, like we have a small turn-based strategy game uh, fan base, right? And we have a, a lar much larger uh, action fan base. So we've kind of got these uh, two different um, fan bases that we could uh, go after. And the most obvious one is a Wizard's Lizard because it's larger, but... That's not to say that that's where we're being driven creatively, you know? Right. So uh, you and I have kind of taken the liberty of working on our own separate prototypes. 
because another thing that we've discussed was that we kind of wanted to work on some current concurrent stuff and see how it came out and then judge the relative merits of both approaches and, and see what might make sense to move forward with. Right. Yeah. Um, so I've been working on a turn-based strategy game. Ooh. Yes. Because for some reason lately, I've just had the itch to really kind of revisit what I perceive to be egregious flaws in Lava Blades design. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are many. There of which there are many. <laughs> um, and I've been having a lot of fun with that. And so I guess that's kind of where the randomization segue was starting to come from is that I'm trying to design it more as a very predictable, almost like a game of chess rather than... Shining Force. Shining Force, right. Yeah, where, you know, we talked about Shining Force the other day as well where yeah. Shining Force is a turn-based strategy RPG. The battles are all turn-based, but then it's got kind of Final Fantasy overworld exploration. Yes. But the battles are, are really kind of lame because... More often than not, your characters can only like move and attack. Sometimes they can cast spells, but even those are fairly limited. Yeah, uh, your warrior characters certainly can just move and attack only. And uh, but they have these like completely like large spectrum. You know, it's like the randomization problem in Magic. And you have these like uh, ends of the spectrum that are really bad, right? Oh yeah. So you can completely miss, which is awful. It's like a complete waste of a turn. Uh, or you can like double attack and crit and yeah. get like stupid high amounts. And the enemies can do the same thing, right? So you could attack an enemy and miss completely. And then he could attack you and attack twice in a row and crit both times and like take you from essentially full health to no health. Yeah. And that- it's completely unpredictable, you know? You'll have uh, like, like a badass warrior in Shining Force is, uh, say, Gort. He's this warrior gladiator type. And, you know, mid- midway through the game, he can one shot a bunch of stuff. So. You might walk up and attack uh, an enemy unit, right? And yeah, on the weak end of the spectrum, he just misses and that's it. You're done. And you're like, it, it has that chess problem, you know, we're talking about where you roll a six on the die and you just don't get to take that piece. You get screwed instead, you know? And I, actually, now that I think about it, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen is you attack a mob, you miss, and then the mob counterattacks and it's a critical hit. Yeah. So it can be complete. Like you thought you were going to kill this thing, no problem. And then it, instead it kills you. And then conversely, you could have a mob run up and attack you, and it could miss, and you counter-attack and kill it. Or a mob could walk up and attack you, and you're like, this is going to be no problem, right? But he he critical attacks you, and then he does it again, because they can have up to two attacks. And so two crits can easily take you from a position of, oh, I've got this great defensive shield up here, like my unit is strong, to your unit's dead, you're screwed. Completely unpredictable. And, And again, that gameplay does have merit. You know, we enjoyed the hell out of it. When we were kids growing up and playing that game and to this day there's lots of games that have elements like that they do have merit but we've been just kind of gravitating more towards you know the predictable type of gameplay i think that at the end of the day it's more fun you know the randomization can provide superficial fun but right the problem is is that you end up at the mercy of the game engine you know you're at the, at the mercy of the random number generator and you don't feel like it's your victory you know yeah. When your unit hits and crits twice or whatever in Shining Force, like it feels good, but it doesn't feel like you've done anything spectacular. Yeah. You know? I mean it's you know, it's almost like, oh, you found a twenty dollar bill on the ground. Like that's you're happy. <laughs> it's great. It's great that it happened, but you don't feel like, man, I earned this twenty bucks. Yeah. It doesn't come with that feeling of satisfaction, right? Right. And so uh I think a good counterexample to Shining Force is uh Advance Wars. 
Yeah. Because Advance Wars is very strategic and hardly random at all. Very predictable. Yeah, very predictable. Almost any time you attack another unit, you have a very clear idea of how much damage it's going to do. Yes. And so the game is more chess-like in that it's about positioning your pieces and taking your opponent's pieces in the most efficient way possible. You know, So like if you have uh, a plane, like you want to attack the tanks with the plane or whatever the... It's like a, got a rock, paper, scissors model, right? Where yeah. infantry is good against jeeps and jeeps are good against this and planes are good against whatever. Right. So that's kind of like more of a model I've been... Uh, I've been moving towards and so that's a kind of one pillar of my thought process with this this prototype is that one randomization is just i'm not even putting randomization in the game until i feel like it would be an absolute boon to the design it needs to be thought about a lot and justified right right you know because it's very easy especially in an rpg to say like oh well you know your your sword does like 1d6 of damage you know because this D D model of combat has been like baked into your brain Right. Like, oh, you know, a longsword does 1d8. And 1d8 <laughs> is anywhere between 1 and 8 damage, which right. is a huge spectrum. It is. Uh, and, like, that's, you know, that's not that fun. Uh, I remember in D&D, a wizard could have 1d4 health to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you played certain games, you, you couldn't reroll. So you're like, 1, really? I've got 1 health. And you get a level. <laughs> and it's the same thing. You could be level, like, 5. And you've, you've got, like, 5 or 6 hit points. You're like, what? Why? And conversely, at that level, you could have like several dozen hit points. It's it's just too wide of a spectrum. Yeah, exactly. And like that's the biggest problem with randomization is that you have these huge, this huge spectrum. Yeah. And it's not even like a bell curve, I think. Well, maybe it is over the long run. No, it's not. <laughs> it shouldn't be a bell curve, right? It should be, statistically speaking, it should be just as likely that you get the end of the spectrum as the middle of the spectrum. Or maybe I'm not. I'm not very good with that kind of stuff. <laughs> the more you talk, the more you embarrass yourself. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Because <laughs> you don't know Prove either. my ignorance. You can't. Yes. Well, I'll just act like I know and remain silent. Anyways, I may be ignorant of the underlying statistical mechanics here, but, you know, the end result... What matters is the gameplay. Yeah, what matters is the gameplay. And, and the fact that it's a possibility for these... Basically... You don't want the ends of the spectrum to happen, but it's possible for them to happen. And so that's almost broken game design. Yeah. Right? So I'm kind of approaching this prototype with trying to leave random completely out of the picture. Yeah. I'll say, and then, then the second thing that I really uh, want to drive this prototype is that to do away with the concept of just generic attacks. You know? So like in, say shining force or or even advanced wars you know there's basically like you can attack that's pretty much it that's pretty much it like you know and in advanced wars it's a little more strategic because it's all about the unit matchups and the positioning and stuff like that yeah but uh i still kind of found that a little lacking i would have loved to have more options available to each unit and so that's another thing that I really want to be the driver of this game. And, and another area that I think Lava Blade really sucked was that the combat was so uninteresting because one, we didn't even have these cool matchups like Advanced Wars does. And two, it was like, okay, you walk up and you attack and you do X damage. And it was only one ability per character. So like your priest or your healer type, if they were out of mana, they couldn't do anything. You can just move them around. How lame is that? Really lame, really lame. 
So lame game, Jeff. Jeez, <laughs> lame game. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to take more of like a, a WoW or a Diablo approach to combat and have like a number of abilities that each unit can use. So like, say you're a fighter, you would have like you know a standard attack, I guess, that does some damage, and then like a power attack that does more damage, but it's on a cooldown and costs like some kind of resource. So like, right. if you're familiar with World of Warcraft. Warriors have a resource bar called Rage, and everything they do costs Rage to, to spend. So it's kind of like mana, essentially. You know, right. think about every class having mana. Yeah. And every ability that class has costs some mana. And then right there you have, you know, a more interesting tactical combat choice. You know, do I use my big attack now because it's going to be on cooldown for three turns? Or do I wait? Or, you know, you know, obviously you shouldn't use your big attack to finish off someone who has one hit point. Blah, blah, blah. You just wanted to make another game with a cool box, didn't you? Like we've talked about before. <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's not going to be a cool box in the same sense as like a, a MOBA. Right. Uh, like League of Legends or something. But I guess it's very similar. I, I really like the idea of the player having three to four things they can do and those things having inherent decision-making choices around them. Like costs, right? You know... In the game that must not be mentioned, you have (laughs) (laughs) ropes and bombs, which are almost like your cool box abilities, right? And they don't have cooldowns necessarily, but they have a resource cost, and so you have to use them strategically. You know, I think that I'm mostly just wanting to get into a position where each unit has a handful of things they can do in any given turn, and the gameplay is then about, you know, using those tools in your toolbox uh to the most benefit yeah so that's kind of where we came from is we got down this dangerous path of we had a a concept we liked that sounds really solid you know it hit lots of buttons in the right places it was you know kind of extends a wizard's lizard in that it's the same type of gameplay so like you know we have proven that we can make a game like that so that's a pretty smart choice in that regard but it made a lot of assumptions you know like for example that this concept is fun we haven't proven that yet and we worked on the prototype together just long enough to figure out that it was a deep hole that we would need to be digging you know and it would be a lot longer before we'd be able to ship a game like that and uh, then we started to notice like resistance and friction in, in our motivation for it because it, it felt too far away you know but but more importantly like the danger of making the assumption like you ever had someone pitch a game idea to you and, and you hear it and you might picture something completely different in your head you know and the most important thing is like if it's unique enough there's you, you can't prove that it's fun you need to prototype that out you know it, it needs to justify its own existence and so that's what we're doing now is it's kind of like you are going where your motivation takes you the things that are scratching your itch the things that are driving you creatively right and same with me. And we basically, like, it's on us. You know, if you've got this desire to make this game, you need to prove it. You need to, you need to make a prototype where you can see, oh, this is pretty fun right here. And I can see that, like, you can see over the, over the hill. You know, we talk about the analogy a lot with, like, a mountain. And you climb up to this cliff. And you think it's the peak. And then the mist separates. And there's another mountain, you know. We need to have a game where we can at least fathom the peak. We can get to a place where we're like, man, right here, just where we are now is a really enjoyable place to be. And we can see there's lots of potential. And, you know, given the right tools or the right contemplation, we can see where it's going to go and where it's going to end up. And that's how it'll, you know, prove its merit, prove that it's worth the time to work on. Yeah. Yeah. We really kind of 
let ourselves get swept away in the thought of a game. And that's yes. dangerous. It's really dangerous, it's so dangerous from a design perspective to just, you know, hear an idea and think you know that it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Oy, but like it, an auto-run Contra. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. That's the best. You know, to be fair, I think that the game that we've been imagining uh, does sound fun, but, you know, we did recognize that it needs to prove itself first. Uh, yeah, and I think that just the fact that it'll take so much more effort to get it to the point where it can prove itself is like indicative that it, it might not be the best project for us to work on right now. Because, you know, we talked about just earlier, uh, we don't have that long of a runway. You know, we don't know how long that game would take to develop. It might be a year and we don't have a year of money right now. So we might need a game that we can launch by end of this year, you know, and that might be smartest business wise. Like it's only August we should be cranking. We should be pushing really hard. And we sh- like our goal should be to get the next game out, you know, good and quality and the best we can do and all that, but also as soon as possible. Like we cannot, we don't have the luxury yet of, of just taking our time. Like, yeah, it'll be ready when it's ready. Yeah. Like we need a little bit of that. It needs to prove itself. We can't just build whatever stupid idea we've got, <laughs> but we also need to, be, need to be able to like move very, very fast. The other thing that's been attractive to us recently is building a smaller experience more quickly and just yes. using that to kind of like, not as early access or anything, but to kind of vet ideas. Yeah. You know, build a small experience and engage the reaction and then see if it's worth reinvesting in, in that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like smaller projects than a Wizard's Lizard, like less money. They'll probably be 5 or $10 games, depending on what we feel like they're worth once we get to that point. Right. <laughs> Actually, just today on Reddit, Game Dev Reddit, I saw somebody, uh, the thread was called like, if I'm going to make a $9 Sidescoin platformer, how much content should I put in it? It's <laughs> like, what? What are you talking about? It's completely the reverse of, of how you should develop a game. Right. That's such a bizarre... Like, how did you get there? What made you think that $9 was where you needed to hit? <laughs> oh, anyway. Well, Very strange. You can almost see where it comes from, right? Like, a lot of indie games are about 10 to $15. With $10 probably being a better price point for indie games right now. But I feel like if that's the question you're answering, you, you don't have any idea if you can even build a game anyone would pay five bucks for. You know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong or something, but... I, I don't disagree I, with you. I'm just saying, like, I think I can see kind of where that mindset would come from. Yeah. Like, it's more of a business-driven mindset than a... It's like, yeah, I want to create I mean, a product at a $9 price point because that's what I maybe think the market were, wants. Like, they're talking to a publisher and the publisher's like, well, look we're not interested in any game that we can't sell for at least $9 or something like that. Right. Right. And they're like, where we think that your game is right now is it's like a $3 game or something. And the person's like, what? I thought I had plenty of content here and maybe I need to. And we've talked to publishers at like casual connect and stuff. And then they've looked at a wizard's lizard and they said things like, this is a a game we would charge about $5 for. Yeah. (laughs) And we were like, (laughs) yeah, that's pretty insulting to hear sometimes. It is. And and they would want a big cut of that. So you want to charge almost nothing for it and you want to cut like, so we're just going to eat ramen forever? <laughs> right. I guess so. But yeah, I mean, I don't have all the context, so uh, there are reasons that could be a thing, but just, you know, I don't know. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Making the game for all the wrong reasons, right? Yeah, it does kind of seem backwards, right? Like, you should make the thing and then price it accordingly. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like.
No Lost Cast next week. What will you do? OMG. For how will you spend that one hour of your time? <laughs> Probably more productively. Maybe. No. How are you going to get your dishes done? That's right. How will you go jogging? <laughs> oh, wow. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, make sure to give us a, a rate on iTunes or comment and tell your friends. And we'll see you next week. We're going to play you out with People of the North Pole by Joshua Morse. Ship it.
but oops anyways well done yeah 